and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm Sefi Kogan. And I'm Manya Brashear-Pashman. A few weeks ago, I did a Shabbat Table Talk segment about a statement condemning anti-Semitism released by the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators and the apology that followed. But there's much more to the story. In fact, a battle has been brewing over anti-Semitism and Israel in the children's literature world for quite a while. Gabby Deutsch, the reporter for Jewish Insider who wrote about the wider issue, is with us now to discuss. Gabby, welcome to People of the Pod. Thank you. Excited to be here. So let's first talk about that apology. How did all of this come to light? Sure. So in the world of kid lit, as these writers call it, kids literature, this is a shorthand that everybody uses. There has been a movement toward diversity, calling out racism in all forms of hate in the past several months and years, as there has been, of course, in American society as a whole. And about a month ago, the beginning of June, This organization, the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators, put out a statement unequivocally condemning anti-Semitism. It was a very strong statement. It was not political at all. It did not mention Israel. It did not mention the politics in the U.S. or elsewhere in the world. And Jewish writers in this field were excited to see it. And it was actually, as I found in my reporting, the result of a lot of work by Jewish writers. There was an open letter sent around urging this organization to put out this statement It's an organization that you have to be a part of when you are starting your career as a writer of children's books and young adult novels. It helps people find agents. It helps them promote books. It helps them get invited to give talks. It holds a lot of influence. So when they put out a statement condemning anti-Semitism, it carried a lot of weight. What happened after that was a lot of controversy on a statement that on the face of it looked very positive, which writers in the Jewish community ultimately agreed that it was. So about two weeks after that statement on anti-Semitism was issued, the same organization put out another statement that looked in part to be walking that back. It seemed sort of like an apology for their statement on anti-Semitism. It said, we apologize to people we've heard, you know, specifically Palestinian American writers, Muslim writers, and many people in the Jewish community got the sense that they were saying, we can't condemn anti-Semitism unless we also condemn Islamophobia and other forms of hate. And of course, the Jewish writers also stand against other forms of hate as well. But they were surprised to see the statement following what had been said about anti-Semitism, which did not mention Israel. It did not even mention the recent conflict between Israel and Hamas. It was purely referring to the rise of anti-Semitism in the United States. And with that statement, that later appeared to walk back the unequivocal condemnation of anti-Semitism, the organization announced that its first diversity chief, who is a Black Jewish woman named April Powers, would be leaving the organization. And a lot of Jewish writers were very upset about this. She wasn't fired. That's something that she and the organization both stand by. Although, of course, it seems likely that had this ordeal not happened, she would still be in her post. Have you talked to April Powers at all? I have not. I reached out to her and I didn't hear back. I assume she is getting a lot of message requests. I imagine so. I imagine so. But now you also discovered in your reporting on this that this was part of a wider struggle that Jewish authors have been dealing with for quite a while, probably those same Jewish authors that pushed for this statement. Can you shed a little bit of light on that? Yeah, so a lot of these writers have been pushing to 
include more Jewish voices in the field, in the publishing field over the past several years, there's been a movement to highlight diverse voices, writers of color, LGBT writers. And a lot of Jewish writers have told me and have found that they have had a hard time including Jewish voices and Jewish stories in that movement for diversity and a feeling that if they were going to tell a Jewish story, it had to be done in a certain way. And in part, this has to do with Israel, although not entirely. But there are a lot of fears among Jewish writers who are supportive of Israel that if they were to, for instance, set a story in Israel or even just tweet about Israel or post on their Facebook because the kid lit world, the kids literature world is very active on social media. All of these writers are interacting with each other, looking at what other people are writing. That's where the politics of this industry really play out on social media. So I spoke to a number of writers and many of them told me that they would not speak to me at all unless I did not provide any information about them because they are worried that their career will be over for saying, I stand with Israel. I heard that from multiple people. So these are Jewish writers who have been working to both include Jewish stories. For instance, after the white supremacist rally in Charlottesville in 2017, when the industry put out lists to promote understanding about marginalized communities who were targeted that day, those initial book lists did not include books about the Jewish community, for instance, despite the fact that Jews, of course, were targeted in Charlottesville and were the object of many of these chants that the white supremacists were making. So in both the kidlet world and the world of fiction for adults, there has been a bit of a push to target the ways that Israel can be portrayed in fiction. So for instance, one book called Red, White, and Royal Blue, which was a best-selling romance novel about the American president's son having a romance with the monarch in Britain. The book made a reference to Israel in that the president in this book, who was a character, simply made some comment about having to deal with foreign policy with Israel's prime minister. It had nothing at all to do with the plot of the book. But after a social media outcry, this author ultimately announced that in future editions of the book, she would take this line out because a number of people had said to her on on social media, on Twitter, that any mention of Israel in a book is quote unquote unacceptable. And in the world of children's literature as well, the same theme has played out. There's a a book that will be coming out next year that was initially set to take place on a, a birthright Israel trip. But after a backlash, the author took out the reference to birthright, although it's still set in Israel and as a result has been bombarded by negative reviews on Goodreads for a book that has not come out and that nobody has actually read yet. You're referring to Haley Neal's young adult novel, Once More with Chutzpah. Let's talk about these politics on Twitter. In fact, that is how or why the society walked back its statement, right? I mean, it it received some responses from one particular author, although you may be able to shed light on other feedback they got on social media. But one particular author jumped on Twitter and jumped on the society, right? And jumped on April Powers for that original statement. Can you talk a little bit about that? Right. There is one writer, a Palestinian-American writer, who after SCBWI put out this initial statement on anti-Semitism, decided to write to the organization and ask why they were not also commenting on Islamophobia and and hatred toward Muslims. And in doing so, she criticized the organization for being quote-unquote pro-Israel. April Powers, the diversity chief, had said in an interview with the organization's Israel chapter, which works with writers and illustrators in Israel, she had said that she as a person is pro-Israel, So this activist on Twitter took that as her cue to tar the organization and say they don't stand for all children. And she said a lot of things on Twitter about how the organization 
is Islamophobic, is critical toward Muslims, hostile toward Muslim writers, and ultimately ended up getting a lot of attention for this on social media. There were a lot of internal politics around this where because of her hostile comments toward the organization, she ended up being blocked by them on social media, which then prompted a larger outcry, which in turn is part of the reason why April Powers ended up stepping down. But in this woman's tweets, she was not only commenting about Islamophobia, although of course it raises the question why the organization cannot comment on anti-Semitism on its own, unless it also mentions Muslims. And of course, she also called out the situation of Palestinians and accused the organization of being complicit in what she views as Israel's problematic treatment of Palestinians. But in numerous tweets that were not mentioning the organization or Kidlet or Islamophobia, she wrote many things that were plainly anti-Semitic. She wrote one tweet saying that Jews in Israel should go back to Germany and Poland when multiple people pointed out to her that that's not a good thing to say to people whose ancestors were killed by the Nazis in those countries. She responded directly to some of those people and said, I stand by everything I have written in these tweets. So a lot of Jewish writers are concerned that the organization, which issued an apology directly to her, named her and said, we are sorry for the way that you were treated. Many Jewish writers felt that they were essentially being thrown under the bus, that this writer who doesn't have any clout. She hasn't published any books yet. I think there's one book that she's currently working on, but that the organization essentially capitulated to her and her one-woman crusade against their anti-Semitism statement. And she's the person who they are now trying to appease and to make happy and not these Jewish writers who are left feeling like the organization that they care about will not stand firmly against anti-Semitism. There has been tremendous progress in diversity and inclusion efforts on university campuses, in the corporate and nonprofit worlds. April Powers was hired as this professional association's diversity and inclusion officer. But have you found in your reporting, Gabby, that Jews are equally considered in diversity and inclusion efforts? Are Jewish concerns about anti-Semitism adequately addressed on university campuses, for example, or in corporate environments? That's a fair question. I think in some ways there are, of course, similarities in the way that the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has completely consumed this industry that ostensibly has nothing to do with it. And this social media ecosystem where, you know, you have these people who write children's books who are completely consumed by debates about Middle East politics in a way that simply makes no sense and ultimately ends up making or breaking people's career for books they're writing in English, mainly for American audiences. I think that that is something that we see in a lot of other fields, the way that politics of what, frankly, to many Americans probably seems like a niche issue has become this defining point where you're either with us or you're against us. You stand with the Palestinian people or you stand with the apartheid Israeli state and absolutely no room for meeting in the middle and trying to understand the other side's But I think what's unique about this happening in the kidlit world, in the children's literature world, is that there's a creative process involved here. And these are artists who are expressing themselves and and ultimately, for some of these Jewish writers, are finding that they're being told they can't express themselves in a certain way. So there's a certain resonance simply because of the work that they do in writing fiction and creating stories for young people. But they're finding that there are certain stories that are perhaps off limits if they want to find success in their careers. 
But would you say that diversity and inclusion efforts, for example, on university campuses or in other corporate environments, do they take the Jewish community into consideration the same way they take the Asian community into consideration or the Black community into consideration? I think some places do it better than others. I think that you raise college campuses, for instance. I think that a lot of Jewish students who are supportive of Israel on American campuses certainly have found in the past several years, and particularly the past couple of months following the recent violence in the region, that their perspectives are not always included or are not always valued. Last summer, after there was this major focus on diversity inclusion following the racial justice protests in the wake of George Floyd's murder, that when it was put to the test this spring for Jewish students who were facing anti-Semitism amid the actions in the Middle East, that ultimately they were not necessarily given the same concern, that they were not given the same concern as other students of color, students from marginalized communities who had found support. And of course, it differs on different campuses, and this can be different in different industries. But overall, where it seemed like there was a level of understanding for those experiences from some other communities, when it came to Jewish students or Jewish writers or or Jewish employees in other fields that they had to justify their treatment or had to say, I oppose anti-Semitism, but I don't stand for what Israel is doing in the Middle East and having to justify where they were instead of unequivocally looking for other people to say to them, we stand with you in your fight against anti-Semitism, regardless of Israel, regardless of what's happening there, we stand with you here. So you mentioned the group PJ Library in your article as really a haven for Jewish authors who really want to get Jewish perspectives and stories out there. PJ Library has provided an entire library of literature for my two children. (laughs) Did you grow up reading PJ Library books by chance? It wasn't around when I was growing up. When I was growing up as well, PJ Library wasn't quite around or, or was in its infancy, but of course they do amazing work. Are there other publishers beyond PJ Library or or besides PJ Library who are providing an outlet for Jewish authors and just a more welcoming environment? I think in some ways it's a a case-by-case basis. And of course, despite this anti-Semitism, this hostility toward Israel that many Jewish writers are experiencing, there are still wonderful books that are being released through PJ Library, but through the mainstream publishing world as well, addressing topics related to anti-Semitism or just contemporary Jewish life. One of the writers that I interviewed in this article who was expressing concern about the way that things played out with the Society of Children's Book Writers and Illustrators is Lisa Weimer, who has a recent book called The Assignment, which addresses Holocaust education in schools and the way that students today think about and talk about the Nazis and anti-Semitism as we get further removed from the Holocaust. She published this with the mainstream publisher and has won awards for it, has traveled the country at at least virtually in the past year and a half, and has found a lot of success in a lot of audiences, even beyond the Jewish community, who are interested in the book and willing to listen. So certainly these books are being published, some of them anyway, but the writers find that they, in some cases, not always, have to fight an uphill battle to get those books published. So you bring up Holocaust, and I want to mention a column that was in the New York Times by 
Marjorie Engel, who talked about you know many of the award-winning Jewish books do have to do with the Holocaust. And you said early on in this segment that publishers want authors to kind of play down the Jewishness of their books or even omit references, or at least play it in a certain way or cast it in a certain way. And I'm just curious what that way is, if you have any insight on that. And is it indeed, you know, for example, in the context of the Holocaust? Is that a a safe way (laughs) to get published as a Jewish author? That is a great point. And I think that that is absolutely the case. A number of the writers that I spoke to mentioned that Jewish writing is often lumped under the Holocaust. Of course, it's important to explore the Holocaust, but it's also important to explore other aspects of Jewish history and what it means to be Jewish today in 2021 as well. I think that a lot of people are more used to and more comfortable with books about the Holocaust, perhaps because they don't necessitate as much introspection about anti-Semitism in the 21st century or about the unique challenges of being Jewish in this day and age. So, for example, one of the writers that I spoke to was a woman named Gay Polisner, who is Jewish, has written numerous books, but is not necessarily known as a Jewish author in that she's not known for writing about Jewish topics. She has been outspoken about anti-Semitism in the industry when many other people are not. And she spoke to me on the record and she was willing to use her name. She told me that after what happened in Charlottesville in 2017, when there were a number of people in the industry who were putting together books to educate children about racism, about marginalized communities, about white supremacy, that at first these book lists did not include any mention of Jews or Jewish topics or anti-Semitism. When she then approached the organizers of these lists and pointed out what a problematic omission that was because of the way that Jews were targeted in Charlottesville, the lists were amended and the books that were added about the Jewish community were about the Holocaust, which is important, but perhaps not the most useful way to learn about anti-Semitism in what was then 2017 in the 21st century in America today. What she said to me, and and I think that she's right, is that that's really emblematic of the way that a lot of people in the Kidlet community think about anti-Semitism. They point to the Holocaust, which is, of course, the worst instance of anti-Semitism of all time, but don't see the through lines between some of the themes and ideas that were prevalent at that time and the attacks and the hate that Jews face today. Well, I don't know about you, but this really motivates me to write a children's book or that novel that I've been dreaming about writing for so many years and really challenge these trends <laughs> and, and push back. Gabby, thank you so much for joining us. And listeners, again, if you haven't read about this, simply Google It's a Bunny Eat Bunny World, Jewish Insider and Gabby Deutsch. The story will pop right up. Thanks so much, Gabby. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Would you like to be a guest in our recording studio? Here's your chance. Please take some time to fill out our audience survey available now at ajc.org slash podcast survey. It will only take a minute, and even if you don't land a guest spot, you will receive a special gift from AJC. Your feedback will help shape future episodes of People of the Pod. Go to ajc.org slash podcast survey. Now it's time for our closing segment, Shabbat Table Talk. With Sefi out this week, it seems I'm dining alone, so I'll share with you what's on our minds at the Pashman family Shabbat table. It's what's always on our minds, really, dessert. So why do I bring it up this week? 
Because preparing dessert in our house means opening the freezer and grabbing a pint of Ben & Jerry's. Along with 2% milk, eggs, and Munster cheese, Cherry Garcia is a staple in our icebox. And frankly, Ben & Jerry got me through the pandemic. I now have the waistline to prove it. But in my state of New Jersey, the contents of our freezer might soon turn into contraband. New Jersey is one of more than 30 states that in recent years passed anti-BDS legislation, laws that exclude companies from state government contracts and pension funds if they choose to boycott Israel. But the laws in New Jersey, as well as New York and Illinois, are even more specific. They also ban state agencies from contracting with companies that refuse to do business with territories controlled by Israel. So when Ben & Jerry's announced this week that it will end its sales of ice cream in those territories captured by Israel in 1967, Jewish advocates, including AJC, urged state lawmakers to invoke their divestment statutes. BDS, or the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement, has become a peaceful proxy for the Israeli-Palestinian conflict here in America. I say peaceful because, as we saw in May, some folks took their positions on the conflict to the streets, unleashing vitriol on anyone they thought might be Jewish. BDS provides a seemingly more civil strategy for singling out Israel. Social justice and progressive causes have long been part of Ben & Jerry's brand. Though the Vermont-based ice cream maker is owned by the Unilever Corporation, it's allowed to operate with more autonomy than other subsidiaries. An independent board makes decisions about its social mission, brand integrity, and policies. They've expressed support for the Black Lives Matter movement and LGBTQ rights, Founders Ben Cohen and Jerry Greenfield also have expressed support for Israel and its neighbors, reiterating its commitment in 2015, the company's commitment that is, to being a voice for positive change and a sensible approach, and investing in the region by, for example, sustainably sourcing almonds from a Palestinian farmer cooperative. Which is why the decision illustrates how and why many well-intentioned social justice activists support the BDS movement. They ignore the movement's overall mission— Frustrated with settlements in the West Bank and the constant strife with Gaza, many well-intentioned activists embrace BDS because they want to halt the settlements. But for BDS, that's just a means to an end. The movement seeks to eliminate Israel. Their founding documents prove it. They condemn self-determination for the Jewish people in the biblical land of Israel. The BDS National Committee's members include the Council of National and Islamic Forces in Palestine, which includes Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, all terrorists. During the conflict, Ben and Jerry's was silent on social media. For two months, in fact, crickets said nothing. When they did finally bow to pressure and break that silence this week, they announced their decision to end sales in the territories controlled by Israel, saying selling ice cream there was inconsistent with our values. But here's the thing. Israeli settlers can simply drive across the Green Line and buy a pint— it's not so easy for Palestinians, whose leadership rewards the families of terrorists who cross that line and commit murder. For Israel to protect its citizens, all Palestinians now must pass through security checkpoints constructed during the Second Intifada to curb the flow of suicide bombers into Israel. Regardless of where they stand on the conflict, Ben and Jerry's should speak up about what they believe. They should try to be part of the conversation, not the shouting, the conversation. But they bowed out. Instead of being a voice for positive change and a sensible approach, they stayed silent for two months and then unveiled this grand gesture. But it is really nothing more than a symbolic gesture that accomplishes nothing but churn emotions, cause more shouting, 
and deny Palestinians a taste. It also makes ice cream, my pandemic comfort food, more divisive and, frankly, a little less delicious. And that's what we'll be talking about at our Shabbat table. Shabbat Shalom. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts, or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop onto Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producers are Kukong Do and Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.